Training Babble Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Schell, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Zero Friction Cycling's Adam Karen. Adam is the champion of drivetrains everywhere, um, doing independent testing for wear rate in different lubes. And Adam, I am super excited to have you here today because I've been kind of obsessed with lube for probably the last four or five years and have tons of questions. So thanks for being here today. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me on. So yeah, always a pleasure. And um, I'm always excited to people to talk to people who are very excited about yeah, lubes and drivetrain friction. So yeah, on a pretty big uh, mission to try to save as many drivetrains as I can from sort of premature death by abrasion. So um, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I think that's one. Yeah, one of the first sort of things is that uh, yeah, a lot of the, the testing it's um, it's really not just for saving you know races of one or two on race day. It's it's really that the, the longer game because uh, you know most people are obviously out there avidly cycling away and their lubricant is actually. Uh, you know, to me, and, and I think hopefully by the end of this podcast to most people as well, it'll sort of click as like your chain lubricant is is really the most important component on your bicycle. It's going to determine, you know, um, the difference between having really low running costs per year um, for your lovely drivetrain or, you know, really high running costs per year. Um, the, the differences are actually, uh, you know, quite, quite large. So larger than most people will, will expect. And um, especially, in a, you know, I think your field where it's mostly more off-road focused, it's it's even more so. Um, you know, the the right. it's actually it, when if a lot of people sort of I guess they don't sort of tend to really stop and think about what's happening with their chain lubricant and their chain it, because I, I think we just get so used to just you know you drip something on, you go ride and and it feels okay and then you know it, yes it goes black and uh, yes I have to replace my drivetrain components at X time and all that that's normal. That's that's just sort of how life is, um, but you know, really, that the top choices versus your average to poor choices difference in lifespan is massive. And then, and when we do stop and think about, you know, that the lubrication challenge for your chain, it is actually a really extreme challenge, um, which which a lot of people don't quite uh, sort of click to. So we sort of try to help help uh, get as many people as possible clicking to, you know, just how tough a challenge that is. You've got this part that's got so many moving parts to it those parts are under quite a bit of load because um you know the the component parts of your chain are quite small and, and that that rider load going through them is, is putting a really high pressure load on them and they're ex- completely exposed to all that contamination so um yeah it's 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 a, one of the i guess easiest analogies would be you know say for a lot of mountain bikers or you know, gravel riders, if you took the seals off all of your bearings, um, you know, your front wheel bearings, your bottom bracket bearings um, and rear wheel bearings and so on and went out for a few rides in the dirt and dust, um, how would your bearings be feeling? Um, would they be feeling nice and silky smooth or, you know, would they be feeling quite notchy, gritty, wearing quickly? Um, you know, we, we pretty much know what would what would happen to the bearings and, and it wouldn't be great and they'd wear out and... Uh, and not be in a right. great place very quickly, and really, your chain is is kind of like that. But you know, it's it's a few orders of magnitude worse because it's working so much harder than your bearings are, and it's it's even so much more exposed. And so, yeah, the cost to run differences by your lubricant choice. Literally, for a lot of cyclists, it's it's kind of like if you are coveting that new helmet or kit or protection gear or you know new set of wheels or whatever it may be. Um, glasses, uh, there's all that, or you can just spend it on burning through drivetrain components by just dripping, you know, whatever lube on, which will, 
you know, a lot of them become sort of fairly quickly some version of, uh, of a bit of a grinding paste and just you're know, just burning through parts, which you can extend the lifespan of those many times and save a ton of money to spend on a lot more fun things. And uh, and if you are racing, obviously that that friction that you're saving um, is going to be propelling you forwards, you know, further every pedal stroke. So the big correlation with your chain lubricant and chain friction is that, um, you know, if you can sort of move from, you know, sort of what someone's currently doing, which is choosing X, you know, random wet lube or lube that might be averaging them sort of around the 10 to 12 watts loss, which is pretty common, especially in an off-road. Um, if you can have that down to lubricant that's sort of staying around the, somewhere in the four to six watt uh, range, you know, literally every pedal stroke, those watts you're saving, say we'll call them, say, five watts, that's five watts of energy every single pedal stroke that's going into pushing you forwards further as opposed to literally going into eating through your drivetrain components faster. So it's a really great win-win. Right. You know, it's one of the best win-wins in cycling because, um, you know, a lot of go-fast uh, things that people do with their bikes. Otherwise, you go for really fast tyres, you've got a greater puncher risk and, risk and they don't last as long. You go for really fast bearings, they need a lot of maintenance. Otherwise, you know, you, you don't have sufficient grease level and dirt gets in and they wear out. Uh, this, you get a really big watt savings and you get, you know, greatly increased drivetrain longevity. So, you know, it's just a, just a, yeah, this is sort of why it's a fun little area to focus on because there's just such great, you know, that double win um, and save a lot of money. So, um, yeah. That's, right. Uh, yeah, sort of. And so what is what was your motivation to kind of go down this path? My understanding of it, and I, I only met you, you know, kind of through yeah. Instagram and from watching the stuff you do, but the way I see it is that you – own a bike shop or are part of a bike shop and you started doing this independent testing to find what you should carry in the bike shop is that uh not quite no so i actually it was a bit of a confluence of sort of um uh just good timings really i guess so i'd I'd been a i I guess started cycling fairly late so i started at pretty much like 35 and became you know sort of had a really great time having fun out on a bike and started racing and so i started following the work of uh friction facts and um and was just just really impressed with what Jason Smith, um, you know, sort of founded and started with Friction Facts. So he and he really was the, I, I guess, you know, he really did shine the spotlight on, you know, what's happening in drivetrain friction. And, you know, it was pretty clear to him. And then it really clicked to me that, you know, obviously the chain and its lubricant was just your massive low hanging fruit, you know, bearings. Yes, you can save a bit, obviously, um, and pulley wheels and so on. But, the huge low-hanging fruit was your chain um, and its lubricant, and then you, you've got that, obviously, that crossover with obviously that any you know friction of a poor lubricant is going to go through to eating through your drivetrain components as well. And so I was following very closely with what he was doing and, and really impressed with that. Um, and he got uh, uh, bought out by uh, Ceramic Speed, so we lost that you know independent test resource. And I, I happened right. to be at the time, so uh, my my wife's a specialist doctor, so it was always going to be me to take a career break uh, when we had our little guy. And so, um, you know, that had uh, happened, so I was having a great fun time staying at home, um, playing with the little guy and, and uh, Friction Facts had sort of been bought out and I was just thinking, oh, look, there's just, to me, it was just such an important area. And I had the, I guess, mm-hmm. the time, um, you know, to sort of play with, 
a hobby business to try to further, I guess, on what Jason Smith was doing. So I wanted to know a bit more so because his testing was really lab based in, in terms of just getting the outright efficiency of the lubricant. So, you know, cleaning the chain, um, and, you know, ultrasonically applying the lubricant so that, you know, because he's not testing for penetration issues or anything like that. He just wants to know, you know, how fast is this lubricant? So that's a good starting point for a lot of people to, to sort of choose a, a lube from. And, you know, the tests are obviously quite short and um, and clean lab based. So he did do some testing with contamination, but it was it was sort of pretty limited. And I, I, I sort of felt like there needs to be a lot, you know, a lot more work done in this area. Um, we've lost that independent resource now. And I think I just felt quite passionate that we really needed to have one. Um, and I wanted to expand on that. So I wanted the testing to really go into assessing lubricants for any initial penetration issues, um, how they perform, uh, you know, in dry contamination conditions, how they perform in wet contamination conditions, how they go at clearing contamination, because a common claim with lubricants is that they, you know, clean as they lubricate, um, which is a great one that, you know, (laughs) all the, once one, as is marketing, once one manufacturer sticks something snazzy on a bottle, then everybody, you know, has to make the same claim to keep up with the marketing wall. So everyone's claiming their lubricants do all these amazing things that they, you know, uh, in a lot of times don't do. Um, now, how the lubricants go in extreme contamination conditions, and then also, I've got a separate test that I do at the end, which is um, uh, the single application longevity testing. So, how long does the lubricant, you know, last um, on a single application? So, so sort of yeah, set about creating um, a couple of uh, you know sort of test protocols, and I did liaise uh, with Jason uh, a fair bit at the start just to really nail down um, the test protocols and. Um, I was going down a different path, which um, not to do too big a segue on this, but um, one of the things we're we're sort of (laughs) battling on a bit at the moment is that there's a lot of testing that is being done. Um, More and more manufacturers are either stepping into the testing space themselves to try to obviously have some data to back their product claims that they're going to market with. Um, And there's also an independent uh, test laboratory which has been doing some outright efficiency testing and getting outright efficiency numbers is actually really, really difficult. So what Jason Smith pioneered, I still believe, is the gold standard. Um, and that, that test standard has been carried on by Ceramic Speed. Um, and so I, I liaise with them a lot for outright efficiency numbers as they're the only lab still that I can actually, I guess, you know, have faith in those numbers. When we look at what's happening yeah. around the world at the moment, and and because it's a it's it is a fun little topic at the moment because we're sort of there's a bit being done on this, but if we take for instance, we'll take squirt, which is a fairly commonly tested lubricant by lots of places as a benchmark, because back in the friction facts days, that was like in the early days, that was the fastest you know lubricant in a bottle, so it sort of gained a really good. Um, you know, reputation, which is carried on from them as, as being a great lubricant. So if we look at, say, um, and these are recent results. So uh, Ceramic Speed Denmark Research Lab has squirt at f- just over four watts loss. Um, <clears throat> Markoff testing for their nano ch- uh, chain launch had squirt at 8.53 watts loss. Wheel Energy doing testing for Absolute Black for the Graphen Lube launch had squirt at 7.1 watts, quickly dropping down to 5.6 watts and then quickly shooting up to 10.1 watts. And then Allied um, testing for their new Grax launch 
their testing was very different, uh, which I won't go into all the ins and outs of that. But basically, they had their squirters like basically six watts higher than um, sort of Grax, which was sort of somewhere around the five watt loss mark. So they've got it at probably about 11 watts. So in outright efficiency testing, you know, you know, and that's just one lube that I picked there. You know, we've got massively different numbers. Now, if you've got one place saying that it's it's basically 10 or 11 watts and one place saying it's four watts, uh, that makes it pretty hard to base a decision on. And there's just, there are so, so many traps to outright efficiency uh, testing to try to get that nice, neat number, um, which again, I won't sort of bog down that, but there's, in short, there are just so many things that need to be controlled exactly. So I could, I could have, for instance, have gone down the path of uh, looking to provide an outright efficiency loss number. But unless, say, versus ceramic speed in Denmark, unless I am running the tests at exactly the same, obviously, power, the same cadence, because cadence, you know, power is a dynamic number. It's force times cadence. So if you run at the same power at, um, at 50 cadence, then the tension on the chain is going to be double than what it is at a 100 cadence, for instance, which will suit some lubricants better than, you know, and penalise others. So cadence has got to be the same. Uh, the chain ring size has to be the same. The cog's got to be the same. The ambient temperature and humidity has to be the same. The calibration and test protocol has got to be the same. The instruments and motors, everything. So if I was to build a machine, um, even following the same protocol, if I don't have absolutely everything exactly the same, I'm going to produce a different number. And so there's not a lot of point in a whole bunch of labs around the world producing a different number for the same lubricant. It's just a confusing mess. And that's kind of where things are at the moment. And so I very deliberately went down a wear correlation path. So I can't provide an actual outright efficiency loss number, but we can provide from the, the wear rate data very clearly as to whether or not a lubricant is going to be, you know, like a really top performing lubricant, especially in this, sort of, this type of riding or conditions, or it's average or it's really poor because it, it flat out takes friction to wear through the metal components of your chain at a prodigious rate. So if the chain is wearing quite quickly, um, then it simply cannot be a low friction lubricant, um, you know, once you're out there cycling. And my testing, especially the main test protocol, it's over thousands of kilometres. It's alternating between clean and contamination blocks so it can track the wear rate from here's how we're going when we start fresh. Um, what's the wear rate like? Uh, does it have any initial penetration issues? So stereotypically, let's say you've got a good wet lubricant, it has no penetration issues. Stereotypically, you're going to get a really low wear rate in block one, which is a clean block uh, of testing. And then when we add contamination in block two, the wear rate is going to shoot up because wet lubricants will tend to absorb contamination. Obviously, basically, it's, it all sticks on contact. Then when you move next to the next clean block, it will um, you know, hopefully drop somewhat as some of that contamination starts to hopefully either A, get flushed out or you know, B, sort of being ground down and, and things are improving as more of the lubricants added. So if we get the opposite of that, if we have a really high wear rate in block one and then it actually continues to improve during block two when we're adding contamination, then we know sort of two things. One, it's pretty good at resisting contamination, but two, we had some initial penetration issues. And then that's sort of a double blind check in the uh, longevity um, test protocol uh, part. Then that the lubricant is then um, applied by immersive application. And if we get a super low wear rate in that initial, you know, um, uh, blocks through that test, 
then that's that double check that, you know, whether or not a lubricant has some initial penetration issues or not. So, yeah, the testing is not sort of that, I guess, clean lab base. It's, it's run for thousands of kilometres um, and we're able to test for initial penetration issues. How does it go against resisting dry contamination? How does it perform in wet contamination? How does it go at clearing contamination? Uh, how does it go in extreme contamination conditions? So we get a massive, you know, overall picture of the lubricant's performance for, you know, right. whichever the rider is going to do. Um and what we all that we don't have is just that nice, neat, you know, efficiency loss number, which at the moment they don't mean a lot because we're getting different numbers from everywhere uh, anyway. And yeah, and so even because uh, I guess my testing's proven, you know, and that that wear out correlation is so robust and the test protocol is so robust, um, is that you know even the, the you know the you know big major players that have got you know literally. $25,000 to $50,000 worth of, you know, testing machines themselves, um, they're using uh, my testing still as a benchmark as to basically back check their results to make sure that what they're getting from their machine aligns with my testing. And so if they get a great result um, through a particular test that they're doing and in my test I'm getting, you know, zero to very little wear, then that's a match. If, you yeah. know, I test it and we get really high wear, then it's not a match and we have to have a look at sort of what's going on. So, yeah, so I went down, um, you know, I guess deliberately a, a completely different path. So one that is getting away from this whole conflicting mess of uh, data and because really that outright efficiency testing there, there has to be a global standard really, um, which is something that is being worked on. So all of those, you have like absolutely every single component of that test has to be controlled. Um and I guess agreed upon and done the same at any particular lab around the world. So there is some work that's been started now to, to try to get to, uh, I guess, a global test standard for efficiency testing. Um, that's going to be a while. <laughs> so in the interim, um, really, I guess, yeah, sort of zero friction cycling is being sort of, um, you know, really seen as, I guess, the, the sort of the, I guess, the trusted independent test resource globally where we can get some data that that tells us a lot about a lubricant um tells us absolutely everything except for that little number but we can say from the wear rate results if it's going to be really at the fast end um or the probably pretty good or probably really not good or or pretty terrible so yes that's a bit of a sort of a uh a story on sort of why I decided to start it, and I started as a hobby business, um, and uh, just to sort of play around with. But it's it's grown a fair bit, um, sort of since that time. So, yeah, I just sort of did it as a bit of an experiment, just to see if it would if it would um, work and be viable. And what I did with the retail side. So basically, to your, the other part of the question is what I did was I did the testing to find the genuinely best products, and then I stocked those products um, in the retail side as a friction cycling, and that covers then the testing, um, you know, sort of costs and time resources. So, and that's what enables yeah. the the business model to be independent because testing is quite difficult to make, you know, I guess, you know, money from. So you've either got to, you know, like Friction Facts had a paywall, so you paid to download the reports. Um, and that's not something I wanted. I wanted the information to be, you know, absolutely, you know, just 100% open and available to all. And so I wanted to try a, a model of, you know, finding, testing to find the genuine best uh, lubricants, then being able to stock those lubricants, um, which has the data behind them. Um, and also I, um, 
probably the, the one of the biggest sales side is that uh, is selling the pre-prepared chains. So most people don't want to deal with having to remove the factory <laughs> grease um, because that's a pain. And you know when people are doing that themselves, where's what they use? You know whatever solvents they use, where is all this stuff ending up? So um, yeah, most of the chains, like nearly nearly one hundred percent of the chain sales are pre-prepped. So customers choose to have the chain already ultrasonically cleaned and pre-prepped with a particular you know product so that it's they've got a super fast chain and they can just skip straight to the fun part of you know re-lubing with their top lubricant choice so yeah so that side's um uh, super busy as well and then yeah the, the other part i guess of the model is that now that we've reached a certain size uh, and, and i guess sort of recognition around the world is that um we do do a lot of testing now so we sort of expanded from one machine to i've now got four machines um so oh, we do a lot of tests yeah, so I do a lot of testing now for manufacturers that, um, you know, that are really genuine about the product that they're bringing to market and they want to have their product tested to see how it benchmarks. Um, so they know that it's you know, what they're claiming is backed by independent test data. So very, very busy on the, I guess, the paid, uh, sorry, paid private testing side of, uh, of the business as well now. So that side's um, really grown very strongly over the last few years. So yeah, so it's went from a little sort of hobby experiment to, yeah, something that's a bunch of fun on on all fronts. So yeah, and I, I definitely, and I'm sure other people do too, definitely appreciate the time you put into it. I've read some of your reports; sometimes are like a novel, and so it's very yeah, thorough for sure. I am going, <laughs> but it's I am it's going amazing. to have to. Um, I've got, I do have to bring those back a bit. So my detail reviews, which I, I've I have. I started following, I guess, uh, like a DC Rainmaker style because uh, I was really always impressed with DC Rainmaker and his power meter reviews. Right. So they did follow that style, but um, yeah, things that I'm not known for my conciseness generally. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but due to time constraints now, like I literally, I'm so, I've got so many detail reviews banked up. So tests that I've completed that I've actually got to get the data and documents up. I I'm, I do have to implement a new template for the detail reviews, which which I, it's it's going to have to be shorter, or it's it's going to be just years from getting a test done to getting the detail review out because you can only get, um, you know, I can only like I've got a dedicated project week next week, so I have one week a month where I focus just on catching up on data and test work and documents, um, because it's yeah. very hard to. You know, now the retail side so busy, I just can't get to that work um, whilst managing the the retail side. So, and in that week, it's kind of like I get a few documents done and I get one detail review done. That's just it's just nowhere near fast enough. So I have <laughs> to my detail reviews, um, which may be so this may be music to to the ears of some and 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 dull for others. Some nerds really love the, that full uh, detail, but I think that's a fairly small um percentage <laughs> i think i think the change to something more concise will be probably overall welcome so i've really just got to get to the nuts and bolts a bit more uh concisely and yeah um so yeah look look for a change in the detail reviews it's going to have to get a bit shorter so what i find interesting about it and um you know sometimes like i'm a chart person i'm a visual person and so yeah. sometimes we see the charts and it, it looks very cut and dry as far yeah. as what has the least wear rate or what has the most, you know, the best efficiency, which I know is mm. uh, can be a sticky thing there. But um, once you get into it, such as Squirt or Smooth, which Smooth is 
one of my favorite loops, but to find yeah. out about the initial penetration and what the work you had to go through to actually get it to not have mm. that initial penetration issue. Yeah. Um, so it can be pretty enlightening. And so I guess maybe this is a good point to start to talk about, you know, what does make a good lube. And, and the first off, you and I were talking before we started recording, the absolute first thing you should do, like, what is absolutely not a good lube? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, as I was saying, so there's um uh, something that I thought had been really I guess dealt with and put to bed about 10 years ago with the friction facts, you know, work was that, you know, factory grease is not great. Um, one, it's nowhere near as fast as the proven top um, fastest lubricants that we know of. So really there's probably really at least about five lubricants now that are in that sort of three to four watt loss range um, that if you, you know properly clean and prep a chain and use this lubricant, you're going to be, at about that three to four watt uh, mark, whereas factory grease, you're really looking at around about that sort of seven watt loss. Um, it's just, it's just not that fast. It's re it really is mostly for packaging. Um, but the the key thing is, is uh, you know, as to what makes a great lubricant overall is is one that's going to stay fast when you're actually outside cycling, and a lot of the best lubricants, you know, they are very contamination resistant, so they stay. Um, you know, very clean and they, they just don't have the contamination, you know, adhere to it on contact and become part of the lubricant. And that's what, you know, factory grease, you know, every single particle of dust will stick on contact immediately and become, you know, part of the lubricant. So quite quickly you have a nice sort of, you know, level of grinding paste that's masquerading as your, uh, you know, chain lubricant. And then from there, like if you haven't cleaned off the factory grease apart from, the fact that A, it's a lot slower, B, it's going to get really abrasive really quite quickly. And C, then if you start adding a good lubricant directly over the top of that, you know, really being kind would be to say that you're putting lipstick on a pig. It's if you've got a grinding paste based, uh, base, sorry, and then you add a really great lubricant over the top, you're just wasting, you know, the money on that great lubricant because it's you're putting it over the top of something that's that's terrible. So um there's been, yeah, more like there's been some really high profile sort of, you know, videos and articles where, um, you know, we've got sort of head tech guys of, of major companies saying, look, oh, we're so sick of hearing that the first thing you should do is clean off the factory grease. That's the biggest mistake you can make. Now, factory grease is amazing. Um, so it's kind of a marketing thing for those manufacturers to say as part of the marketing for the chains. So, hey, it comes with this amazing, you know, lubricant. So oh, don't clean off this factory grease that's the number one mistake and so we're kind of fighting a bit of an information battle on that front at the moment and obviously if if that information is coming from you know like the head tech guy of a major company it carries a lot of weight and so a lot of people are going to you know sort of you know, believe that information and, and run with a choice that's going to really just end up with a very short lifespan drivetrain and a lot of what's not going into pushing them forwards uh, faster so so yeah, battle number one. We sort of I've got to really step up the battle on on that at the moment. So um, yeah, I can absolutely confirm. And if you speak to anybody else who has uh, you know I guess spent a respectable amount of time in this area and has a lot of I guess uh, respectable credentials behind them, like your Jason Smith of uh, Friction Facts and um, like your Josh Portners of Silka that have obviously been pretty heavily invested in making some uh, great lubricants over the last few years. Uh, you know, any of the 
major players um, will say that, you know, absolutely, like just it's not even, how is it even a debate? The first thing you should do is remove the fracture grease and then move to a top, you know, proven um, chain lubricant. So, yeah, so step one, I can confirm to everybody categorically, um, please, please ignore any advice, re <laughs> um, removing factory grease is a bad thing. And please respectfully put a comment on whatever article or media that you <laughs> might see that on <laughs> to, to correct them and refer them to uh, to contact me so we can have a chat about it. Um, and yeah, then uh, and move to really the top uh, top lubricant choice of which sort of, you know, we have that sort of the testing data and um, and that that question of, you know, what is so what is the best lubricant you know, that's that in itself is that sort of pretty big question in, in that you know sort of what is your writing um and what's your maintenance um uh, be, yeah. before we move on to that i'm i'm curious because, like the um I, I would love if factory grease was a really good lubricant because it is such yes. a pain in the ass to get off a chain yeah. initially and so mm. what are some of your tips for that initial uh i guess strip you know, yep. um, it, it can be such a bear. And I, I, I guess the thing I've used in the past is just a ton of like rock and roll with the yep. solvent. And after a few <laughs> yeah. applications of that, it seems to get out of it, you know? But, yeah. 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 So uh, using a lubricant to clean it is, is really not going to be your, um, I guess, your, your best go-to. You, you really do want to solvent clean that lubricant off. Um, <clears throat> this is where, Again, it's it's a it is an absolute snake pit out there. So there's so much terrible information on so many cycling forums and YouTube channels about how to clean off factory grease, and and a lot of it is made to be uh, it's either I guess pretty sort of rush poor information. It's not really going to do it very well. So factory grease is actually pretty stubborn stuff. Um, so, but also some places really overcomplicate it, and you know, so if it's got like a 16 step process using five different you know um <laughs> agents then it's then it's probably going a bit over the top it's actually it is quite simple so you just got to have the right you just pretty much need a strong solvent so there's to any chain cleaning there's really two parts part one is cleaning the chain so cleaning off either the factory grease if it's a new chain or um if you're doing a maintenance clean on your drip loop chain um then it's clean actually i guess getting the chain clean and step two is making sure there's no film left behind from the cleaning so that your a lot of the top lubricants on the market want to bond to clean, clear chain metal. And so if you just say, for instance, use like a degreaser or petrol or diesel, you'll clean off, you know, really the factory grease or you clean off the previous drip lube, but they do leave quite a heavy film of themselves behind. And if you move to something like a, an immersive wax or a top chain coating or wax lubricant, they have a really tough time fighting through that film to bond to clean clear chain metal. So there's really the two parts. One is solvent cleaning off the um, the, the factory grease or the lube. And two is then using basically just a, a sort of a, a finishing agent to make sure that there's no film left behind. Uh, so the products, unfortunately, thanks to different things being called different stuff all around the world. So in Australia, it's pretty easy. So we've got what's called something called mineral terps. It's a really strong solvent and it's really cheap and it's really, it, it's very clean. So it doesn't leave a very heavy film behind. So that's great for cleaning off factory grease. Um, and it's very easy. Um, it's pretty much just a 15 minute soak in mineral terps for bath one. Then you pour that out and then you give it a couple more baths 
uh, you know, just agitated baths for a couple of minutes, um, pour that out, and then you move to basically three bars of what's called methylated spirits, which is basically pure alcohol. So very similar to isopropyl alcohol um, in a lot of ways, it just very cheap. Isopropyl alcohol is pretty expensive. Um, and, yeah, so you finish with a few agitated bars of that, dry the chain, and then you're moving to your top lubricant. You've got a perfectly clean chain with no film left behind. And what you move to next is going to bond to that chain metal brilliantly. So it's really simple. Um in other countries, they can have trouble. So what's called mineral terps in Australia can be called, like, for instance, in America, it's called white spirits. Um, and what we call methylated spirits in America is called denatured alcohol. Um, and so a lot of times, so we do get a few questions coming in. It's like, oh, I'm trying to follow your guide for cleaning the chain. So I've got all, all this, all the chain cleaning stuff on the, on the website. It's all super easy. But the main issue sometimes is that in a particular country, they don't have a product that they can easily translate to that. The best thing to do would be to pretty much download the material safety data sheet for, say, mineral turpentine, take it to your local hardware store and say, what do you have that is this in my country? And they will have something that is exactly the same, just called something different. So right. um, just, just follow that. That's sort of the go-to. And then finishing with basically a pure alcohol uh, product. So either, uh, you know, whatever in your country is the same as methylated spirits or if you need to, isopropyl alcohol is perfect um, or if you need to, acetone. But again, they're, they're just more expensive and you don't need them uh, to, to pay that much if you can get away with something that's quite cheap like methylated spirits. So, um, yeah, so it's really just those two. And that's a very a question job. about that. It, one thing I've always wondered is that, like, are you storing it and are you using it multiple times or are you tossing it after each bath? Yeah, so uh, for myself, because I do it as a, as a commercial service, I, I'm literally, I'll be prepping over 3,000 chains this year and growing steadily. <laughs> so we'll probably be uh, well into the fours and fives next year. So I've got a constant production line uh, going. So for me, uh, I'm a bit different. Obviously, I, I'm the the other great thing with mineral turps and methylated spirits uh, for someone like myself um, is that they're easily recycled via an alcohol distiller. So I've got a couple of large alcohol distillers, and I can put the greasy, oily turps in and get back clean turps. And then I just have some sludge left in the bottom, and that can go into a container. And then once a year, I can do an annual run to. Um, you know, hazardous liquid waste disposal and get rid of the sludge. So for me, I can prep thousands of chains per year and have very low cost in solvent. And it's, it's you know, pretty much 95% um, of that I get back. It's recycled. For those at home, um, that's not going to be your viable option. Um, so really bath one, so your first bath of uh, getting the factory grease off is going to get quite, you know, contaminated with the factory grease. So that you'll want to pour into a container and you can just store that. So really for most people, it is storing, you know, if you're hopefully using mineral terps or an equivalent, but if you're using a degreaser or a petrol, then, you know, put that into a container so that you can, again, you can just store that somewhere safe and do an annual run to a, you know, to dispose of it properly. Um, and bars two and three, though, for, for both, you can then you can keep those in a separate container because they can be used for bath one for your next chain. So your your cost to clean is is quite small. So 
um, you're really only going through, you know, a few hundred mil of, um, of you know, sort of I guess what you call fresh solvent, you know, per chain um, if, if you follow that. So it's very cheap to, to prep a chain properly. Um, probably the, ma- the main maintenance cost really or solvent cost for people is, is those that are trying to properly maintain, especially a wet lubricant chain. Um, because you you literally if you once you once you ride a wet lubricant a bit, uh, you go to clean a chain, literally you will go through liters of solvent to get that properly clean. And this is where um, so I've got a if people go to the I've got a sort of YouTube videos uh, channel started just to start to get some of the information I've got on many page documents on the website cross onto video format. Um, yeah, it's you'll see that. So I'm not a proponent at all of on bike cleans um they work okay but when you see the difference between uh you know what you get out of a chain for an off the bike clean um you start to understand just how much solvent you need to flush through a chain to properly get a chain back to perfectly clean and it's literally it's liters so what will happen is the first bath will go black in seconds the second bath will go black in seconds and Eight to ten bars later, it's now coming out sort of grey to light grey, and then when it's when the solvent is coming out basically as clear as when it went in, then you've got a perfectly clean chain, and then you move to a couple of rounds of you know the alcohol to to finish it off to get it so there's no film, and away you go. But that's where you go through a lot of solvent, um, and again you can use the I guess the final half of your cleaning rounds. Uh, you can keep that separate to do the initial rounds of the next clean but you do go through quite a bit more um, in the maintenance side versus if you're cleaning off a, you know, a factory grease chain, you go through very little product if you clean a chain from brand new, not ridden. Um, so when you pick up your new bike, it really, really does help to clean the chain straight away. First, first job, clean the chain, move, you know, get a top lubricant on it uh, because if you ride that chain, you're going to go through litres of solvent as opposed to, you know, 600 mil. So, um, yeah, right. big, big difference there. So, and, and how do you feel about a, would you do that initial strip with an ultrasonic cleaner if you had one? And what, what are your general thoughts on mm. ultrasonic cleaners? Yes, yeah, so this one comes up a lot. So, ultrasonic, so the general, my general advice is, uh, is, is no. Um, for most people in ultrasonic, um, you're really not going to get any uh, benefit. From that outlay, um, they're more they're sold as this really sexy sort of magic, perfect clean. Now they, I mean, they will if they're used properly, um, and that that's another topic again. If they're used properly, you will get a better clean from an ultrasonic than you can with a um, you know doing agitated container method. But you will not notice it for your um, I guess especially say your training chain. So ultrasonic cleaning is really only done um, or I guess recommended as part of, say, full race chain preparation. So if somebody's going down the path of preparing their own dedicated race chain and they want to try to prepare it to the best level possible, then doing using having an ultrasonic can really help with that. And I've got a an ultrasonic uh, guide on the website. So if you're doing um, ultrasonic cleaning or prepping race chains, I've got a separate guide for that. So you'd read the chain cleaning guide first um, and then read the race chain and ultrasonic guide as the second part so you'll understand the the difference so um yeah for for most people they're just for cleaning your chain to go riding and training and so on um and even for most people for, for racing 
like it's a it's a, what's it's really in that marginal gains area. So yes, it will do it a bit okay. better. Yes, it's going to make it'll make the chain a bit faster, but uh, it's a lot more um, faffing around, uh, and you do have to follow a number of I guess steps fairly specifically to do it right um, for a marginal gain. So uh, you absolutely do not need an ultrasonic uh, cleaner at all to do a great prep of your chain. Container agitated container method works brilliantly for you know ninety nine percent of of riders. So. Um, and yeah, and the other thing as well is that a lot of people that do try the ultrasonic, they do buy, I guess, pretty cheap ultrasonics. And honestly, cheap ultrasonics don't usually work great. So they either they don't have the power to really do anything um, uh, too fantastic, um, and they often don't last that long either. So um, you know, there's a good ultrasonics do cost a you know, a, a bit of money and not many people are willing to spend the money on a good ultrasonic. And so that's why I recommend to read that race chain and ultrasonic guide, decide if that's going to be a path that you're going to go down. Um, and if so, you do need to buy at least a sort of half decent uh, ultrasonic or you'll just have a, yeah, pretty junky sort of thing that's not going to do a lot. So, yeah. Yeah, a noisemaker, right? Yeah, I mean, they do. They can do something. The, the main thing is, and it's all in, in the guide, but basically a lot of ultrasonics, the cheap ones, they, 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 they'll look good because the, obviously they copy the look of the really good ones. So um, whatever you buy from eBay or Alibaba or Banggood, it's going to look great, but they often mix in a whole bunch of stuff. So like the claim power is often absolutely nowhere near their actual power at all. So they might have 200 watts of power, but, you know, 175 watts of that might be to the heating element and 25 watts of that is to the ultrasonic. And then divided across three litres of the tank, you've got, you know, seven watts of ultrasonic power per litre. And really you want to be in the sort of minimum 30, you know, sort of that 30 to 70 watts per litre ultrasonic power range. Um, so, yeah, they're just they're just generally not, not very good. So there's a few, there's the sort of, hints and tips in there in the guide of what to sort of look for and what to what to go for so um they they can be great so if you're not prepping race chains if you want to do really uh, i guess the best maintenance possible on a wet lubricant chain then they can be a great part of your general maintenance because they will do they they will clean out contamination from the tiny you know fissures and nooks and crannies in the chain that container agitated you know container cleaning just won't get into so if you are going to stay with um, wet lubes, and especially if you're staying with wet lubes and riding off-road, which my advice is that's a mismatch of purpose. Um, so <laughs> advice number one is if you ride off-road, don't use a wet lube. It, every particle of dust sticks on contact to a wet lube, wet lube, so we can go into that in a bit. But um, I can tell you straight up or and all the listeners straight up that wet lube and off-road is a mismatch of product use. Um but uh, if someone is using a wet lubricant and looking to do the best maintenance, then a decent ultrasonic can really help with that. So um, it will clean uh, a lot better than um, just using agitated container baths. The main error that people make <clears throat> without bogging it down too much in ultrasonics is that people pop their chain into an ultrasonic, set it to run. You know, in, in 20 seconds, the solution in the ultrasonic is black. And... 
then they remove the chain and think you you beauty i've done this magic clink so you smell ultrasonic you know if, if what is cleaning your chain is black then you know after that first 20 seconds nothing great is happening from that point um right. so you you know really you rip through the container bars first you do the heavy lifting with the agitated container bars and when this when the solvent's coming out almost as clear as when it went in that's when you move to the ultrasonic it's the sort of the piece de resistance to then be able to get into cleaning all the tiny nooks and crannies and fissures that you won't get to so um yeah big mistake people make is they just throw in their solution throw in the chain run it for 20 minutes and think magic i've done a perfect clean because i used an ultrasonic and it's not a great clean at all so yeah so all of that stuff and more is sort of covered in the guides but there's a lot of errors that people make and there's and a lot of it is just there's a lot of um incorrect instructions out there on the good old interweb um so there are umpteen channels that you can go and find the absolute incorrect way to use an ultrasonic. Um, so <laughs> that's. I'll be sure to I'll link to your guides for sure in the uh, podcast notes yeah. so that we can uh, hopefully save some people some time there. <laughs> yeah. So, but um, yeah. So, because I think in your area, so you're coaching a lot of people that are uh, riding in the world of dirt and dust. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm in, yeah. I'm in Boulder, Colorado. And so it's, it, and where are you located? Are you're uh, South I'm in Australia? Adelaide, South Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah, I yeah. think the dirt's similar. I rode mountain bike yeah. once when I was there and it was yeah. kind of similar dirt, like the moon dust, you know? Like yeah. Very oh, we've dry, got a ver dusty. variety. Yeah. We're pretty lucky in Adelaide, actually. We've got like a whole bunch of different, oh, I guess we, you know, we don't have the really big mountains. So we don't have these, you know, sort of epic, you know, sort of descents and, and climbs and so on of some places, but we do have a, a, a really great sort of variety of sort of little parks all around us. So you can in, in a in a few hour ride duck through like three, four or five different mountain bike parks and sort of yeah. zoom through them. So it's so it's great. Um but yeah, so for those, so probably the in in your in the particular field. So what makes a great lube for riding the world of dirt and dust is a lubricant that's going to stay clean. So you know the key number one is that you don't want the lubricant attracting the dirt and dust. Um, and so this is where wet lubricants absolutely um, tend to fall down. So um, because obviously if the chain has a wet lubricant on it, absolutely every single particle of dust is going to stick to um, the chain. And claims of, uh, you know, lubricant claims of it cleans as it lubricates, uh, <laughs> that, that just it just doesn't really hold any water in any real sense so um again if, if people have a look at my video um uh, cleaning basics sort of you know cleaning maintenance uh, level one which i think is episode three and you see how much solvent you pump through a chain to get it clean uh, and that's just a literally that's just a stereotypical sort of wet lube chain that's been used for um you know a, a bit of off-road riding so if we if we we get a little bit nerdy here. So let's say we add 10 mil of lube. So like your rock and roll gold. Uh, mountain bike chain is going to be sort of somewhere usually in around the 112 links, 114 links long. So you're adding less than 0.1 mil per link of lubricant onto your chain. And a good portion of that is carrier. You know, it's, it's, it's got a solvent base to it. So at about 0.05 mil of what you're adding per link is actually lubricant to your chain 
and that's going over the top of you know really what's got a whole bunch of abrasive contamination in it so the amount of flush cleaning you're getting um you know at 0.1 mil per link is not massive um when literally it would take to get that chain properly clean would literally take you a good three to four liters of solvent to flush through the chain to get it back to perfectly clean so zero adding 0.1 mil of lubricant per link has a it, it does something it doesn't do zero Mostly, though, what you're doing, you're not really cleaning your lubricate. What you're doing is improving the ratio of lubricant to contamination in your chain. But that's temporary because as you go out for your next ride, so, you know, you're going to get more contamination in here. So over time, and people will obviously see this from ride one to ride 10 to ride 50, you know, the ratio of contamination to lubricant in their chain is just going to get worse and worse and worse. And what happens with a lot of cyclists is they get caught out, you know, um, with, I guess, their chain wear and their chain eating through their cassette, um, which can get really expensive, especially if you're running some high-end cassettes, is that they might ride for, you know, a month or two, check their chain wear and see that things are going not too bad. And then they check two months later and find that they've absolutely ripped past the wear mark. And so two things have happened. So... Initially, the chain, a good chain will come with some good protections on it. So it has a low friction coating and it will have some usually chromium platings on the, on the you know, pin and the top ones will have some chromium plating on some other components, uh, parts of the chain as well to, to guard against wear. And initially, your I guess the abrasiveness of what you're running in your chain is not so bad. So the initial wear rates of a chain come out, you know, looking like they're tracking along okay. So, but with these lubricants, you know, your chain wear rate is not linear. So that second half of its lifespan, the wear rate is going to shoot up massively as your ratio of contamination to lubricant is now getting really quite bad. And those initial protections have been compromised. They've been abraded off um, and you don't have that low friction coating on the chain anymore. Your surface coatings are all pretty much abraded off as well. And so that you've got a really sharp curve in your chain wear in that second half. And so, and people often miss that. And so um, they just get caught out. And then when they buy a new chain, they need to buy a new cassette and it's pretty expensive and obviously it's sort of pretty wasteful. So, so understanding that sort of a little bit, especially if, if one's using wet lubes is that, you know, what's actually going on when I'm riding my wet lube out in the world of dirt and dust. Um, you have to be so on top of your maintenance really understanding that cleaning as it lubricates uh, claims on a lubricant bottle um, really aren't going to be happening. Um, and that, you know, if you're running a wet lubricant, be prepared to do a lot of maintenance um, or really be prepared to possibly look at a different lubricant choice. So the the top lubricants for, um, you know, riding off-road will be basically lubricants that are either A, fully solid, like your immersive waxing, which is always, I guess, the sort of number one choice. But some people will be all for immersive waxing. You know, some people, once they sort of see and hear a bit about immersive waxing, will go, wow, that just makes so much sense. I just I can't get onto that fast enough or make the change fast enough. For other people, it's a bit of a slow burn. It's like, wow, I can see how that makes makes a lot of sense. Is that going to be for me? Can I make the switch? And they have a think about it for a while and then usually at some point take the plunge and, and switch over and then find out how easy it is. And for others, it's like, that's batshit crazy. I am not 
taking my chain off <laughs> every time I want to relube my chain and put it in a pot and melt wax. That's just like, are you kidding me? So there's kind of three main camps there. If you're not immersive waxing, there are these days we have a lot of options that we didn't have a few years ago, which are, I guess, what we call are the chain coating type lubricants. So these are like your, um, your Silka Super Secret Drip, your UFO Drip, um, and they basically um, are kind of like waxing in a bottle in that, you know, they they set to a solid coating like an immersive wax does. So, and that's the key is that you're running a solid lubricant in the, you know, the world of off-road and that, you know, the dust just basically bounces off. It just doesn't adhere to the the chain. So the, you know, the, the rate at which these lubricants become, you know, I guess contaminated and abrasive is vastly, vastly lower um, as a bit of a, so a little bit of nerdy data. So the top five lubricants that we've tested through the dry contamination block in the zero friction cycling test have averaged 2.6% of their wear allowance uh, through that test block. The top five wet lubricants um, tested so far have averaged 27.9%. So you've got a nearly 10 times the wear rate of the top five wet lubricants ever tested versus the top five chain coating type lubricants ever tested. So, you know, and intuitively, hopefully to a lot of people sort of now, it you know, it makes a bit of sense here. What's going to make a great chain lube in the world of dirt and dust is one that's going to stay clean and that, you know, really, you know, for a wet lubricant to come anywhere near the performance day in, day out of the top sort of chain coating type lubricants, some, you know, like you would have to fully solve and flush clean it after every single ride. And that's just not time or cost effective, obviously, when you can choose a lubricant that's just going to resist that dust sticking and becoming part of the lubricant. So, um, and then, so you mentioned smooth and squirt, so they're great. Um, so the the main difference, so you look at, say, a bottle of Smooth that's, say, $25 or a bottle of Squirt that I think you can pick up anywhere between sort of about $15 to $20 and your bottle of Silver Super Secret Drip or UFO that's going to cost you $55. So they, they use a very different wax base. Um, so I guess the benefits that you're going to get with the really, you know, paying that sort of $55 mark for the really high-end products is they don't have any penetration issues. So they just get straight in there, and they're very. They use such a refined wax base that they're very, very easy clean. So you can, you know, if you've done, say, you get caught out in the wet and you do a full mudder ride. So no matter what lubricant you're using, if you ride in the wet, you really have to reset the chain afterwards. It doesn't matter what it is. If you don't, you will, you know, post wet ride, you have to pay the piper one way or another. You either pay the piper in a little bit of maintenance time and reset the contamination or you're going to pay the piper in chain friction and wear because water is the transport medium so it doesn't matter if you've got a solid chain you know coating lubricant on your chain they will perform you know i guess as as best as anything can in the conditions at the time but you still have to do something afterwards because water runs right through the chain it brings the grit deep inside the chain with it where it is pressed into the set coating. Now, your, your top waxes will actually, they actually have really good self-cleaning properties um, where they, the, the abrasive contamination will actually abrade the wax off and typically the contamination is lost with it, but that comes at the cost of treatment lifespan, obviously. So the harsher the conditions, like any lubricant, the 
you know, the shorter the lifespan, but how quickly that degrades will depend on the lubricant. But your solid coatings will tend to shuck off that abrasive contamination really well, but you're still going to have an, a decent amount in there um, at the end of a, you know, a wet ride. It's wet riding, especially in, you know, harsh conditions. It's just such an extreme contamination challenge. You just got to accept the fact that if you want to get back to a low friction chain post wet ride, you have to do something. And those particular lubricants, so the top waxes and those top uh, um, chain coating lubricants, they're a super easy clean in that the wax base will basically melt off with boiling water. So you'll be able to do a great clean and reset really just by boiling up the kettle and giving them some a bunch of swishing rounds just in boiling water. You will melt off the vast majority of the contaminated um, you know, wax that's left. And you'll, you'll feel it once you've done a few hot water baths and you're wiping the chain dry, you will actually feel it. You will feel the chain is silky smooth as you're wiping the chain through the cloth. And that's your key that is like, you beauty, I'm, I'm good. I can now either re-wax or I can, you know, dry and reapply my um, chain coating loop. When you do that with, say, like a wet lubricant, if you, and I'm sure in your lifetime you've probably done it where you've gone to do some maintenance on a wet lube chain and you've done the first couple of baths and you get the chain out of the bath and you can just feel all that grit crunching and grinding away. And you go, wow, like that was running in my chain. Uh, and just you know what that's doing for your sort of friction and wear. So now with your, say, smooth and squirt, so they will perform great. They have really high uh, dry contamination resistance. So they're not a true solid like you, the, the waxes and um, super secret and UFO. But they, they set to like a, I guess you call it like a paste, like a plasticky type state. So they're still very it's dry. kind of tacky. Yeah, yeah, but they're very dry dust resistant. So their performance in dry dust conditions is great. And the, the wax base they use is very long lasting. So you do get really good treatment lifespan for a, a coating of smooth or squirt. So they've got a couple of really great points about them. The, the tricky part with those lubricants, and this is, I guess, sort of kind of where you get what you pay for a bit, is that they do have significant initial penetration issues. So um, when you've cleaned your chain, um, and I've got a guide on the website about really if you're not applying them via immersive, then some hints and tips on how to try to negate those initial penetration issues. But it is a bit of a faff. Um, mm-hmm. And we've tested them six ways from Sunday, um, you know, double check, double check, double checked, and testing this method, that method, and, and whatnot. And really, you know, versus applying those lubricants of immersive, you still always get a bit of a you know, higher initial wear as they finally get their way into the to the pin. So they do have some initial penetration issues. Um, if I was smooth and if I was squirt, I would actually have a method and instructions to apply them immersive as the initial application on a perfectly clean chain. Um, <clears throat> kind of like what Absolute Black did with their graphene loop. It's got exactly right. the same penetrations. Exactly, It's exactly the same level of initial penetration issue as smooth and squirt. Um, and they know that because we tested that and then they came out with, you know, their, their goal was to ensure that, um, you know, their customer has, you know, the best possible friction outcome with their very expensive product. So the instructions are very clearly that when you clean the chain, you must do an immersive application. To me, Smooth and Squirt should be doing that. And it's it's not really that difficult. You can buy a 500 mil screw top container from the supermarket, pour your Squirt or Smooth into that container, do an immersive application, 
smooth, it's quite easy. You can actually pop the top off the bottle and mm-hmm. just pour it back into the bottle afterwards um, and hunky-dory. You wipe off all the excess, allow an overnight set, <clears throat> brilliant. You've negated that penetration yeah. issue. Um, With that, yeah. d- does it have to... I think I've read before, maybe I'm off, but I, do you have to heat up the chain to a certain not, temp? Or do not you if you're doing immersive, no. So you really want, uh, really at minimum for any of those lubes, you're looking at sort of 20 degrees is really their minimum happy temp. So <clears throat> otherwise their viscosity is really quite high. Um, oh, okay. sorry, low, I should say, so it's very viscous. So really, you really want to do it at about 20 degrees. So uh, issues really do come up with people that live in quite cold climates and their bike is stored in, say, their shed. And they go and apply their smooth or squirt on a chain that's like five degrees um, and the lubricants, you know, a similar temperature, like the penetration is just terrible. So if you can, you know, really applying it indoors where your ambient temperature inside your house is probably going to be hopefully somewhere around that sort of 20 degree mark, even 18 degrees, things are going to be fine. Um, And if you can, if you've done that perfect clean or especially that initial clean of your factory grease, doing it via immersive really just solves all the issues that you're going to have with um, the penetration um, for those lubricants. And then you've got, really, you've got a great lubricant um, uh, for not much money, like a $25 a bottle of Smooth or $20 a bottle of Squirt. Like they, they'll last you for ages. And if you're only riding in dry conditions, they perform brilliantly. Their contamination resistance is outstanding. Treatment longevity is outstanding. You've just got that initial sort of faff to get past that penetration issues. Um, where they become a bit more tricky is that if you often do ride in the wet, so if you do have to do a maintenance clean, so you've ridden in the wet and now it's time to clean your smooth and squirt, the, the wax base they use just, it won't dissolve off with boiling water. So they're using a different wax base. It's much more, got a lot more sort of a mineral oil base to it. So you do need to use a solvent, um, to clean that, um, lubricant coating off. Um, so you're going to go through some product costs there to do the clean. And then you've got to negate the penetration issues again. So if you're riding all the time in, in wet, then they can become a bit of a pain, I guess, from a maintenance side in terms of, you know, because the, the lubricant, once it, oh, sorry, the, the contamination that gets pressed into your smooth or your squirt, you know, it's pressed into that set coating. It's not going anywhere unless you remove it. You know, if you, yeah. just, if you just wipe the chain and re-lube, with some more squ- smooth and squirt, you're just adding a few mil of lubricant over the top of the old now abrasive, um, you know, uh, lubricant on the chain. So you're improving the you know the ratio, but it's not a great outcome. So you you will pay the piper in drivetrain friction and wear. So you do have to do a reset, and those products are just, I guess, yeah, a bit more costly, a bit more work to reset um, versus your. Uh, really highly refined products like your super secret and your UFO, which the reset post a wet ride is super, super easy. So that's that's really where you're paying the difference, I guess, in your, you know, apart from outright friction as well, they're a bit quicker. Um, you know, that's the difference between your $55 bottle and your $25 bottle. Now, in, in my experience, and because I've actually, if I could... Sh- if I had a camera or if people could see and I could show my bookshelf, I've got like five yeah. lubes sitting over to the left of me here. And yeah. one of them is a super secret. One of them yeah. is smooth. One of them is the uh, tungsten all weather, which I just tried. And so yeah. in my experience, I feel like the super secret, like I went out for, I think a five hour dusty mountain bike ride 
And within yeah. about three hours, it started getting really noisy and sounded like yes. metal on metal where yep. smooth, I have not run into that. And so has no, that been your no, experience right. as well with the yes, testing? Yeah, absolutely. So the those really refined uh, waxes, part of the, I guess, the trade-off of that is they will have a bit of a shorter lifespan versus your smooth and squirt. The wax base they use is longer lasting. Um, but this is where I guess the number one uh, recommendation is, I guess, the immersive waxing because we'd say you're super secret. You know, half of what you're putting on is carrier because it has mm. to, you know, get the lubricant in there and then flash off. Um, with immersive waxing, it's 100% lubricant. So you will get great lifespan. Like you won't, you won't, if you do an immersive wax with, say, molten speed wax or hot milk, you won't run into that issue five or six hours into your ride. Like I, I did a XC marathon race uh, early this year. That was 12 and a half hours, 213 kilometers. Chain was still silky smooth. So your immersive, your top immersive waxes will get through those lengths of rides. Absolutely no problems whatsoever. Um, and be super low friction and smooth at the end. Um, getting those top waxes into a bottle, the trade-off is obviously you know, a lot of what you're putting on has to be carrier. So they don't have that, you know, re you, you're really most most times you're going to be looking at probably about a, you know, in a lot of, you know, off-road conditions, about a three-hour-ish lifespan. You know, if it's good conditions, sometimes it's dry but not very dusty, you might get four or five, but um, they're going to be shorter lifespan than the immersive waxing. Your smooth and squirts, that different wax base, it is a lot longer lasting. Um, so, you will get through, you know, and that's that's the appeal for some people as well as they, where they like those products is that they can go a longer stint before they need to reapply. Um, and they're just really cheap. So for some people, you know, if they're not racing, they're doing a lot of riding and their riding is always in the dry, then, yeah, it's, it's like it's a great option. Um, but if you ride a bit in the wet and you have to perform those maintenance cleans, um, then, yeah, you're going to have to do a lot more work with those lubricants so personally I, I tend to go with obviously if i'm you know if it's not immersive waxing then the normal general or the top recommendation is your super secret and your um uh ufo for most riders if they're not going on those super long rides all you all you have to do the only trade-off is you need to reapply them about every sort of three hours and that's it that's yeah. your that's your trade-off and they just stay super clean so um, and the the drivetrain component lifespan on them is is you know exceptionally long. Like they've th those two are basically at the top of the charts for drip lubricants with the you know the greatest um, chain and drivetrain parts longevity by a pretty big margin. So um, they just yeah stay super low friction. But okay. yeah, and so immersion waxing is kind of the gold standard, and and I'll come yeah. back to that in a minute because I've got some questions about that, but. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts? How do you feel like if I were to do an immersion wax, but then top up with either smooth or super secret or something for my training chain? Cause I yeah. know you're a proponent of training chains and race chains. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yep. So super secret um, or, or UFO is the number one choice again, because they're using that super refined wax base. So, and super secret was actually designed really to work in conjunction with their hot melt immersive wax, um, and it'll work just as beautifully with molten speed wax. Um, so that's a really popular option and one that, you know, we didn't have uh, a few years ago where it was kind of like once you're on immersive waxing, really 
you know, you, you want to be staying on top of that immersive waxing, which for some people was a little bit daunting. They sort of would worry about, can I keep up with that? And so having Super Secret has really taken that um, fear factor away because they can do an immersive wax, reapply Super Secret for the next sort of three to five relubes, and then do an immersive wax again to reset, you know, any small amount of contamination that has got in there. Some's going to get in. It's inevitable. Obviously, you're riding the chain outside in dust, even the best solid chain coating lubricants, some dust penetration over time is inevitable. So uh, that's where immersive waxing really is king because your immersive re-wax is your reset and you're recoating the chain back with a new fresh coating of solid super slippery wax again. So having that that option with a super secret now makes it um, for a lot of, uh, especially mountain bikers and off-road cyclists, um, you know, uh, I guess makes it easier for them to to make that switch to something that's going to give them just such lower um, uh, you know wear. So so that's a great option. Smooth and squirt, uh, yes, you can. But being a different wax type, uh, you can contaminate your lovely pot of molten speed wax or um, hot melt over time. The best way to do it, if you're using smooth or squirt, would be you want to run that treatment down until it feels starts to feel and sound a bit dry so there's not much of it left and then do your uh, immersive wax and i wouldn't really do it after any more than you know sort of a couple of coatings of that um so you probably only want to do one or two treatments of that run it until it's dry and then do an immersive wax the risk you run if you sort of keep piling it on and then do an immersive wax is you're mixing different waxes that aren't necessarily going to get along and you may not get a great adherence with your immersive wax then. So you'll sort of you, what you'll may notice is that uh, when I first did an immersive wax treatment, like it went for eight, 10 hours and felt silky smooth. And now I've done an immersive wax and it's feeling really dry after two to three hours because it just hasn't bonded well because it's it's you know sort of been contaminated with something that is just not playing as as nicely with, if that makes sense. So they do work. Um, so a lot of people that use them. So for instance, they they a lot of got a lot of customers on wax that might go on a cycling holiday. They'll use a coating of you know take a bottle of squirt or a bottle of smooth. They probably only need to use that once or twice. Run it till it's fairly dry. Rewax when they get home and no issues. But those that have sort of habitually been piling it on and then try to do a rewax they have had some issues. So, um, but you won't have that with your, say, your super secret or UFO. You'll, you know, they, they work perfectly with immersive waxing. So, yeah, they're just okay. using that sort of very similar base. So, yeah. so now let's get on to some kind of a rapid fire questions on immersive waxing. So I, I yeah. just recently adopted this and yeah. it's interesting, just like everything else, there's, lots of conflicting information out there and on yes. some things I look and it, it's a very simple process. And then I look at something else, like um, mm. I think on Silka's website and they're talking about when the chain goes in, it has to be, the wax has to be X degrees. And then yeah. when you pull it out, you want it to be like starting to set a little bit and like, yeah. and it becomes a lot more involved. <laughs> yes. And so yeah. I, I guess the first question I have is does the wax, I, I know the wax matters, but um to the extent, once you've got the correct wax, mm-hmm. um, how much do those other additives actually matter? So point being, like if I, I was to find the proper wax at a hardware store, which I think is food grade kind of canning wax, right? Yep. Low mineral content. 
or mineral oil content. Yeah. How much does the tungsten or the graphite or those types of additives actually add to the wax? Yeah, they'll make, a, I guess, especially for that type of stuff, they'll make a little bit of difference. Um, you will not, and this is where, so one of the other information things I'm trying to debunk a bit is the DIY waxing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, it's something that uh, over the years I've just had uh, just countless, you know, emails, uh, inquiries and like help, help me, help me, what's gone wrong with my waxing from all around the world. DIY waxing, unfortunately, I mean, you can get an okay result uh, if you do go down the path of getting a really highly refined wax, like a food grade canning wax, then that is a good start and you'll get a good result. Um, adding the other additives will improve things a little bit, but not much, probably not enough to warrant the cost of buying them, you know, and, and trying to work out what ratio you're going to mix in. The key with a wax, apart from having, say, you know, and your junk wax, so when people use candles, uh, cheap hardware store paraffin, just cheap paraffin they buy off, you know, eBay and whatnot, that stuff is just, it's it's really bad. So apart from having a really high mineral oil content, which so it gets quite dirty and gunky quite quickly, it often has a lot of other things in, in it that you just don't want, like soy or palm oil, um, especially candles are really bad for that. So it's just that they're really not great. You end up with a pretty big mess and they're not really very fast either. So, um, and then what we see with the, with the top waxes, so the how hard the wax is. So the actual, um, that I can't, I guess, yeah, really overstate enough how important the exact hardness of the wax blend is. So you can buy a gazillion different types of, you know, even with the food grade, wax and in terms of how soft or hard it is um, and you can go into like say buying a lab grade paraffin if you go into like a, a lab supply store you will see you know like 30 different you know grades of paraffin of different you know soft and, and how hard they are now if the wax is too soft you get a gunky mess and quite high wear if the wax is too hard it's very brittle and the lifespan is terrible so it will just very very quickly abrade off so what has gone into the development behind products like your hot milk and M-Speed Wax? So even M-Speed Wax, their latest formula now has basically got like double the longevity versus their original formula because they've improved that over time to really obviously make sure that they're sort of keeping up with the new kids on the block like Silka Hot Milk. And so, you know, you've got PhD chemists behind the development of these products. Um, you will not match that even close <laughs> with DIY waxing. Um, so I suppose that's fair. <laughs> yeah. And especially with something like, say, like take, for instance, um, you know, Silk has always got, I guess, the, you know, the Silk sort of price tag to it, but it is, a, it is a brilliant product. But if you look at something like your own speed wax, like in Australia, it's $44.90 for a bag of wax that say road riding is going to last you, you know, 10,000 kilometres off-road equivalent. You know, you're probably going to be looking at about, you know, 3,000 kilometres plus easily of off-road uh, riding for a $44.90 bag of an amazing product. A lot of times with a DIY wax, they buy some paraffin plus delivery. They buy some moly or tungsten disulfide plus delivery. They buy some PTFE plus delivery. They've now paid more all up for <laughs> had they just bought the top product 
and they've still got something that's really, really average, you know, at best as compared to the top known waxes. So um, it's one of these areas where, like, I guess it, it's 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 appealing to a lot of people because a lot of people are avid tinkerers and it's kind of like, you know, they see all this stuff that, and, this, and this is, again, unfortunately, there's just so much rubbish out there on YouTube about DIY waxing. It, it is just, it's a nightmare. Um, I saw some, uh, one of my uh, customers recently forwarded me a video of a, of a tri-coach and he was using one candle to melt another candle onto his chain. Um, <laughs> so, but, and some of the, the blend mixes, like there's one where they say to mix in 50 grams of PTFE per pound, like it's just, it's massively, well, it's like no one's ever been anywhere near that on the top waxes. Like they're just, they're pulling the information literally, you know, out of nowhere. They're just, having they're just putting out stuff that they have absolutely really zero idea it's just like this will probably sound good and if i say it with confidence <laughs> then everyone's going to believe That's me key. it's going to be yeah. yeah so you know really go with what is the proven top thing it's, it's just an area where you know it is the most important component on your bike because it is responsible not just for saving a bunch of watts it's responsible for the lifespan of your drivetrain and if a cassette's going to cost you eight hundred dollars do you want that to be chewed out and replaced, you know, after one chain that didn't last that long? Or do you want that cassette still on the back of your bike years down the track? And that's literally the difference between, you know, the top products and your, you know, crap ones. And, you know, when a drivetrain, especially in, say, some of the road stuff like an Axis, if you have to replace the Axis chain rings and a cassette and a chain, that is a big bill. Um, you know, that's what I was just gonna say with the new Eagle stuff. I mean, I just replaced yeah. my cassette and it yeah, I mean it's like four hundred US. Yeah. Well with Axis Road, <laughs> I mean, you've got some some people obviously they've got the the chain rings that are integrated with a power meter. Um, you chew through those. Um, you know, it's it's a fifteen hundred dollar set of rings and a seven hundred dollar cassette. So uh, you know, with some of these parts like you should be DIY waxing. At the same level, you should be DIY making your engine oil for your car um, because, you know, over time, it's probably going to be a similar bill on some, um, you know, depending on what sort of tier group set you're riding and how often you ride and how much power you put out. Like, it, it's just an area where there are some areas where it's like, okay, leave it to the experts. It's the most important component yep. on your bike. Leave it to the experts. So, sorry if I've broken some people's hearts that just bought some... <laughs> canning wax and uh and some additives um in all honesty like you can probably you'll make a good lube you, you'll in all honesty you'll probably be able to make a lubricant that will beat quite a lot of off-the-shelf bike lubricant products especially if it's a wet lube and you're riding off-road you'll probably actually beat those so it's not all is lost you'll do okay you just won't come anywhere near matching your molten speed wax or your hot milk not even close so and I'll clarify a little bit. That that's kind of what I meant by that is you know, if I were to if I were to I can't talk, if I were to just buy the correct wax from my hardware store, yeah, how much faster or more <clears throat> wear resistance do I get with molten speed wax or silica um yeah. hot melt? Yeah, so you're looking the, the molten speed wax and hot melt like out of like you know, say a lab test, it's still going to be probably at least around the sort of two odd watts faster outright speed. But the main thing is it will be a lot longer lasting per treatment and it's going to stay a lot cleaner still over time. So as you okay. go through the, the re-waxes, the, the difference is going to become very apparent after sort of three, five, ten 
you know, re-waxes as to what's happening on your chain. So, um, yeah, so there's still, you sort of, it's one of those things you're going to save maybe depending on what you buy from where and how many different things you get delivered. Maybe you save 10 bucks at the start, but over even a fairly short amount of writing, you'll soon start to fall behind due to the wear rates of the top waxes versus what you're sort of DIY waxing. So it is it is that sort of false economy. It's just one of those things that, yeah, it does it it, it does suck in a lot of avid tinkerers, and I get that because I'm an avid tinkerer. You know, like I'm one of those people. Like a lot of people, it's like I can fix that myself. I can do that myself. I don't need to pay someone to do it. I don't need to go and buy X. I can do it. Um, but yeah, in lubrication, it's just, it really is an area where, yeah, as, as tempting as it is, especially once you've watched some videos on YouTube about DIY waxing. Uh, yeah, my best advice from well over 300,000 kilometers of control testing and, you know, networking with a lot of the top people in the fields is don't do it. Um, stick with the top <laughs> proven products. Um, so yes, you'll beat a crappy or average drip lube off the shelf. Um, if you get some really good stuff, but you, yeah, you will fall well, well short of the top products. So, uh, okay. yeah, so that's the key advice there. Now, with some of the, especially with like Eagle Twelve Speed, and um, you know, some of the new components, the the tolerances I've heard are quite a bit smaller, and yeah. so it, I've heard it can be harder to get the wax in there, especially with the brand new chain, and so. Mm. To what extent does the temperature of the wax matter and how long the chain is actually in the wax? Does that yeah. matter? Yeah. So it's actually, it's a, the good news is it's it's a whole, whole lot simpler than what a lot of channels make it out to be. Um, so uh, for road chains, it's super easy. Um, sorry, I should say derailleur chains. For derailleur chains, it's actually super easy. The As long as the wax is anywhere between basically 70 degrees Celsius and 100 degrees Celsius, you are perfectly fine, no problems whatsoever. You do not have to get it to 93 degrees Celsius exactly. Um, anywhere between 70 and 100, you are good to go. So the wax will be a nice, you know, light viscosity. You will be able to swish the chain through that and the wax will penetrate absolutely no problems at all. Um, the narrow gaps really are a tough challenge for yeah, like we we're talking about before with some of the wax emulsion lubes, like your smooth and squirt. For immersive waxing, there is zero issues whatsoever as long as it is, you know, melted sufficiently that you can give it a nice good swishing. So zero wishes there. Super, super easy. Uh, you do not have to wait for it to cool down to uh, a certain temperature before you remove it. Um, I've spoken with Jason Smith about this because this is something that's that's come up on a couple of videos where they do show uh, someone standing there with a like a thermometer, waiting till the wax gets near to its set right. point, removes it, puts it in a in a in a um, bucket of cold water. Um, basically, all you're going to do so by locking in all that extra wax. Um, so officially, there is a tiny benefit um, in doing that, but it's tiny. It is like minusculely small. So it's something that maybe you might do for like a priority level race. Um, for 99.999% of cases, all you're going to get by doing that is a whole lot more excess wax flying off your bike when you start pedaling and yep. 10, 15 minutes down the road because the pressures inside the chain are really, really high. We're talking like can be up to the thousands of PSI from your rider load because the parts are quite small. So the 
layer of wax that you will have left bonded and coating all the parts of your chain 15 minutes down the road are going to be the same as if you remove the chain with the wax at 90 degrees and you hang it to set on a 40 degree day versus if you let the wax cool down to 60 degrees, remove it and stick it in a bucket of ice water. You're going to be in the same spot basically about 15 minutes down the road. Um, all you will have though um, is a whole mess of excess wax that flaked off when you first started pedaling. So, and a bunch of time standing by your wax pot um, waiting for it to <laughs> cool down. So, yeah, so really for literally 99.999% of immersive waxing, it is just, it is so super simple. You pop your chain off your bike, you put on your little swisher tool, you turn the pot from off to low, you pop the chain on top of the wax, you just go away, do something fun for however long. Um, you don't have to stand there and watch the wax melt. There's always a bunch of fun stuff to do. You just you have to come back whenever later, swish the, the chain in the wax when it's melted, hang it to set, and then that's basically job done. Then before your next ride, you just break the wax link bond, reinstall the chain, and off you go. And it's that simple. So the waxing video that I've done, which is I think episode four in my YouTube uh, channel, shows just how easy doing an immersive wax is. It is literally should be for most people a total labor time of about four minutes. So yeah, because okay. it's say yeah. allow allow a minute and a half to pop the chain off, put it on the swisher, put it on the pot, turn the pot on. Thirty seconds, sometime later, to switch the wax and hand to set, and then say allow a couple of minutes to break the wax link bond and reinstall the chain on your bike, and you get pretty quick at doing that. Um, after after you've done your first couple of waxes, you're off and running. So, and um, and that's it. And so, really, the the key though is just put the chain on top of the wax and turn the pot on. Um, so the chain heats up with the wax and the old coating melts off with the wax, so that whenever you get back to the pot, you can just swish it and hang it to set. If you put the chain in, like you've pre-melted the wax and you, you put the chain in um, from the bike, give it 10 minutes in there to for that chain to heat up to the same temperature as the wax and have the old coating melt off. If you just dunk it in there and start swishing, you won't you won't melt off the old coating, so you'll get a not a very good re-wax. So that that's pretty okay. much it. So uh, yeah, there are some there are a bunch of videos that make immersive waxing look enormously complicated and with oh about 50 different steps. Um, so have a look at my video instead and you'll see it is just so, so easy. And so really the difference, so if we go back to what I was sort of saying before about, you know, when you are re-lubing a chain and you're adding, say, 0.1 of a mil of lube per link, you know, over the top of your previous lube uh, coating, with immersive waxing, you're putting your chain in a bath of basically 400 to 500 mil of 100% lubricant. You know, whatever small amount of contamination that managed to get into your wax chain during uh, your previous rides, that coating is going to melt off. You swish it around and it's going to be recoated. So a rewax just does a brilliant reset of any contamination in your chain and recoats it in a, you know, solid, super slippery coating of wax. And it's, it, it's basically that that makes immersive waxing, you know, it has that unassailable advantage because you're resetting the contamination every time. And so you're just setting it back to basically near zero. And then for X, you know, you know, hours on your next rides, all parts of your chain are sliding on a solid, super slippery coating of wax. The chain metal is basically left out of it. So if you don't really push treatment lifespans all the time, if you, the, the golden rule as well is just 
you know, if you can just err on the side of rewax early, you're just always keeping all parts of the chain sliding on a solid coating of super slippery wax, keeping the chain metal out of it. And the lifespans you can get out of your chain, they, they literally often have to be experienced to be believed. You can tell people you'll get, you know, three, five, ten times longer depending on what they were using before and they'll look at you like, yeah, okay, you're telling me that, but there's no way in hell I believe it. And they won't believe it until they experience it. And that's once they then move to waxing, pretty much no one goes back. It's like, oh, it's just, it's so much easier than I thought. And my drivetrain is always clean and my stuff is lasting forever. Um, it's, and it's so, so that's, that's really where it has the big advantage is that you're doing that reset. So now, yes, over time, obviously you are going to bring a little bit of contamination into the pot every time you do a rewax. But, you know, you can do the math on how long is it going to take my 500 mil of wax in my pot to reach anywhere near the level of contamination to lubricant versus if I'm adding 0.1 of a mil of lubricant per link on my chain over the top of the old coating. You know, it's, it's going to take hundreds of waxes for the wax in your pot to be, you know, getting anywhere near a state of being, you know, now a poor abrasive wax that you're putting back on your chain. So all you have to do is replace that wax periodically uh, as per the sort of the guidelines for the, you know, as per the manufacturer or the guidelines on my website and everything just stays amazing pretty much forever. So it's, yeah, it really is. It's something that's probably one of the biggest misnomers is that, you know, it's it's difficult and um, it's it's really super easy. Uh, and it just has a couple of unassailable advantages that lubricants in a bottle simply cannot match. So um, that's why it's sort of the number one, um, yeah, recommended still by ZFC. And I, I can't see anything uh, in a bottle that's going to knock an immersive, a top immersive wax off. I think what we'll see over time is I think we'll see more companies come to market with a top immersive wax option because you just can't really beat it. So, and as more and more people are, um, yeah, sort of tweaking to just sort of how easy it is, um, then, yeah, more and more people are switching over. So waxing's gone from, you know, I guess I would say five years ago, very niche to now becoming a lot more mainstream. And especially with the, you know, wax compatible lubes like Silk Super Secret that just take that sort of, it's almost like what people have with range anxiety with electric cars. Um, it's it's taking that, can I keep up with rewaxing? Because I ride a lot. Can I rewax every week? Can I rewax twice a week? Is that gonna, Am I going to be okay with doing that? Just takes that anxiety out of it. They know they can top up if they need to during the week. Um, yeah. And then just do a rewax when they can, you know, it, once a month, uh, whatever it is, it just makes it so easy and they just get that reset back. So, yeah. And I know you have to go pretty soon here. So I'll just, uh, one more question for you on the wax, because I, I would imagine at this point you've convinced everybody that waxing is the way to go if they can swing it. Yeah. Is there any difference for people that live in a humid climate versus an arid climate? I know for me here in Boulder, it's very dry. And so I've never had issues with, um, chain rust or anything, but I went and mm. did a race in Michigan. Yeah. It was a 10 hour race. And I noticed the next day, like a brand new wax chain, but the next yeah. day I already had some rust on the chain and that was yeah. new to me. So I yeah, didn't know yeah. if, um, or even like, does the wax still get as hard as it typically would if you've got a lot of humidity in there? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really good question. So in some, um, you know, areas where if it's either you've done a wet ride or if it's a really humid, so the, the wax will be abraded off the outside of the rollers first and 
the change rollers are made of a high carbon steel for hardness and high carbon steels do oxidize quite readily. So um, you will find that, uh, yeah, if, if something's going to happen with a like a solid uh, chain coating type lubricant, like a wax or a UFO or a super secret, um, that that can be an issue sometimes if it's you're riding in a, either a, a really humid climate and you've done a decent stretch of a ride, especially if it's been a bit abrasive where that wax will be abraded off the outside of the rollers, you know, or if you've done a wet ride, um, the wax is going to will have been abraded off the outside of the rollers um, and they'll be then unprotected um, against that, you know, sort of oxidation from the air. So the the and this is where I think one of the one of the other I guess biggest misconceptions I've been trying to um, correct a bit is that people think that waxing is not suitable for people who frequently ride in wet weather because of that issue. You can't just sort of go for a ride with your wax chain and then park your bike for a day or two um, because that chain will start to oxidise. And so um, you really do need to re-wax your chain post such rides or um, in you know, sort of the case of yours to make it easier, you can just literally add a quick coating over the top with the Silk Super Secret just to cover those rollers. Um, the reason why it's, a, I guess, a you know, misinformation that waxing is not suitable for um, wet conditions riding is that, yes, you do need to do something with the chain when you get back. Um, you don't have to do it immediately. Uh, it's not going to just rust in a heartbeat. So just, but just within sort of like a, say, 12-hour period, pop the chain off the bike. So it's just started raining here. You might get a rain on the mic. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, pop the chain off the bike, stick it on the wax pot, turn the pot from off to low, um, and job done. So, you know, it's going to take care of resetting that contamination in the chain. So for people that ride a lot in wet, so if you've got like uh, you're an avid trainer um, or you're an intrepid commuter um, and you're often riding the wet multiple times a week um, and you think, man, I can't re-wax every day, the best thing to do is to have uh, multiple chains on rotation so like sooner or later you're always going to need another chain and if you're riding say a wet lube and often in wet conditions that next new chain is not very far away um, if you're, especially if you're replacing it at the recommended replacement mark so pre-buying your next chain or your next two chains it costs you no more you're just pre-buying your next two chains and so what you can do is you've done a ride in the wet or you've done a decent ride in humid conditions you can't re-wax straight away pop that chain off wrap it in a microfiber cloth, stick it in a drawer or whatever, it's going to be fine then for a week or more, pop your next chain on and go ride. Um, and then you just re-wax when you can get around to re-waxing. So, sorry, I just got my little guy that might be ducking over. Sorry, puppy, no just problem. on the phone. Oh. Uh, in about 10 minutes, puppy, just go see mummy. I can't. I'm on a, I'm on a call with a little guy. I'm on a call Yes, it is a school day today. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, school clothes. It might still be hanging. Yeah. No, it's okay. Okay. I got to go, little guy. I'm on a call. I'm on the camera. <laughs> Bye. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, if you compare it to, um, so you, you think, okay, on the one side, I've ridden in the wet. And so the water's trucked in a whole bunch of contamination. And I've got to pay the piper one way or the other. So now with my wax chain, I can pop that chain off, wrap it in a cloth, or stick it on the pot, turn the pot from off to low. It doesn't matter if you leave it there for a day. Like as, the wax doesn't care how long it's melted for. Um, as long as the wax doesn't get too hot, that's the only thing the wax cares about. Um, so 
you can pop the chain on in the wax pot, turn it from off to low, and it doesn't matter if you leave it overnight. It doesn't matter if you forget about it and come back in three days. It's it's happy as Larry. It's in a nice spa bath. It's all good. Or just wrap it in a cloth and uh, like an absorbent cloth, like a micro, microfiber cloth, and you're protected. Um, and then you just re-wax, and you can re-wax two or three chains at once. So you do that with chain one, pop your next chain on. You ride the next you know, day and it's raining, pop that chain off, wrap it up, pop your next chain on. Um, and then you just re-wax all two or three at once. Uh, and it's so super time efficient and you haven't had to do any cleaning to, and, you know, and everything's reset back to a lovely, super slippery um, chain again. So uh, to try to match that, so if it's like, you know, if you're right in the wet, you should use a really good wet lubricant. Um, they will adhere to the chain really well. So something like uh, you know a synergetic or a Nix friction or another top wet lubricant. Yes, you can ride in the rain, um, park your bike for days, or do multiple rides in the wet, and your chain is not going to oxidize. But you just obviously understand that's what what is happening. Re the friction and abrasiveness of what's running in your chain is really shooting up, and you're going to have to do something about that. And that something is going to take liters of solvent to properly reset. So overall, what's easier? Constantly solvent resetting a wet lubricant chain or not doing that and paying for it in friction and wear or pop a chain off, pop your next chain on and just then re-wax when, you know, whenever suitable. So uh, I can tell you from, uh, I guess, a lot of personal experience as well as, as well as a huge amount of sort of customer experience that waxing, immersive waxing, for those that ride frequently in the wet is vastly easier because you just don't have that maintenance. You're just popping a chain off and sticking it back in a wax bath and it's job done. So um, all you need to do in that case is uh, change the wax over a little bit more frequently because you're bringing more contamination in. Um, that's it. Um, it just It's just vastly easier than uh, all the solvent cleaning that would be required to try to maintain any type of drip lubricant. So just one last question um, on that. I was always under the impression that a, a chain had to be perfectly dry before it went in the wax, but it sounds like, I mean, can it be a little bit wet when you toss it in? Yeah, the, it can. I do dry. I personally do dry mine. Uh, so I, I do recommend to dry it. Um, and, uh, but a lot of people don't and um, they've been fine. So the, the water will, you'll actually see it bubbling off in the, the right. wax. Um, so uh, I, I dry it just because it's easy. I've got a, like a heat gun and I blast it for two minutes with a heat gun and then it's dry. Um, and if you want bonus points, so I'm in the, I guess in the camp of, I, I, I take just the one little next step above what I mentioned there. So what I, what I was talking about, there was just the, the easiest, uh, way to go about things. And that's, that's the main focus because I want people to, you know, <laughs> If they can, just go that super easy path because you're still going to be absolutely miles and miles and miles ahead friction wear-wise of any other path. Um, bonus points um, would be to do the boiling water flush rinse um, if you've ridden your chain in wet conditions because you're going to melt off the bulk of the contaminated wax, blast it dry with a heat gun, and then pop it in the wax pot. So it's literally like five minutes of maintenance with just boiling water, no solvents needed, and you've done a really great reset. And so that's personally what I do, literally just because it keeps the wax in my pot cleaner for longer. So I don't go through 
Um, you know, I guess it's this lot, lot sort of longer interval before I have to change the wax in my pot. Um, but that's bonus points for most people playing at home, especially the mountain bike demographic has been much slower um, than road in terms of thinking about drivetrain friction and wear, and they really want things you know, kept quite simple. So still probably, even despite all this, there's still probably a large percentage, possibly the majority that would, that would just think, ah, oh, there's just no way. I'm just going to keep dripping something on my chain and uh, that's just what I do. Um, the mountain bike crowd or, or the demographic has been a lot like that. And I know that because I'm an avid mountain bike racer myself and <laughs> I get to talk about this stuff because I sponsor a number of events and series in the mountain bike scene. And uh, the take-up still of focusing on chain friction and lubricants in the mountain bike demographic is still a lot, lot lower than it is in road and triathlon. Um, it's really going well in CX. They're, they're picking it up a lot better because they're much more in a race mindset. Um, but so for, really for the mountain bike demographic, I want it as simple as possible in that all you need to do, pop the chain off the bike and right. either wrap it up yep, and then just re-wax when you can or just pop it off the bike and stick it in the pot and turn the pot on. And even if you're not doing the bonus point stuff, you're still so, so far ahead versus what you were doing previously with just adding some lubricant over your now quite the contaminated and abrasive coating that, um, yeah, you will just save so much money in your drivetrain wear. So, um, yeah, it's just well worth taking the time to have a bit of a look. And so really I think the you know, the, the best thing would be for a lot of people would just be to have a bit of a look at, say, the the ZSC YouTube channel, so the episode four on the immersive waxing, just to see how easy immersive waxing really is. And then also have a look at episode three, which is the sort of um, maintenance level one, and just see how much solvent you've got to pump through a chain to get it properly clean. And then think, okay, you know, they'll, it's night and day. It, it just should jump out so obviously, like, what's going to be something running silky smooth um, on all of my parts of my chain and stopping them from wearing versus what's probably going to be quite gritty eating through my chain and therefore eating through my uh, lovely cassette and chain ring. So um, that should really jump out and hopefully get more people, um, you know, yeah, not not following that misinformation about you if you're often riding the wet that you shouldn't wax. Um, it's really the opposite is true. Nothing is easier to maintain than a wax chain. Um, nothing even close. So, yeah, that's that's probably okay. one of the yeah key messages I've tried to really drive home. So, yeah, awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. I I learned a ton from this today, and I think we've definitely convinced some people to uh, make the jump. I will link to um, your site, the YouTube videos, a lot of your articles. Where can people find you on social media to follow you? Uh, so, yeah, I do have um, Zero Friction Cycling on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, I will say up front, I am uh, really, really bad at um, keeping up <laughs> with social media. So um, I will try to get better at going through and um, answering questions and comments on social media. Um, but mostly um, the best thing to do if if something is not covered because I'm getting these days because and and like it's so it's it's just me and I've got yeah a mountain of test data and um, or testing to do and data and documents and reviews to get up and obviously manage the retail side so I'm, I'm peddling really flat out on all fronts and um, so I've been working very hard on the online resources to try to cover 
the vast majority of inquiries. So um, where possible, um, <laughs> try to check the online resources first um, and also the ZFC YouTube videos. And then if you've still got a query, like if, if your question is not sort of been covered in that, then send me um, an email, um, which is just info at zerofrictioncycling.com.au. So emails I'm, I'm better at because I start at the bottom every day and I can work my way up. But uh, yeah, messages come in via personal like direct messages on Instagram, Facebook, Messenger, Pages Manager, they just get they just get <laughs> like it's a nightmare. It gets lost, and obviously there's comments on posts and there's comments on things, and it's it's yeah. I I just cannot keep on top of those pretty much at all. So unfortunately, if you send me a um a social media message, I'll apologise in advance if either I don't reply or B it takes me two weeks. Um, but if you've got a question that you really want clarified that's not covered in the in the stuff, the best thing to do is send me an email, and then I'll generally get back to that much quicker. So uh, that's the that's the best thing. All right, I'll yeah. uh, I'll put that in the show notes as well. And and yeah. I will say in your defense that I I DM'd you over Instagram and you uh, got back to me pretty quickly. So I appreciate <laughs> uh, that. Yeah, no, oh, so <laughs> it, it is a bit of a scattergun uh, approach, unfortunately. Like literally, I I can say, for instance, do a work block or go for a ride. And I come back and I've got like 50 icons on the top of my phone and I'm like, oh, holy Batman. <laughs> and so <laughs> I just have to, I just hit clear all because there's just, it's like, I've, I've got like <laughs> a ton of, of, you know, whatever I get back from something, it's like, I've got to get, you know, chains prepping. So I'm always running to the ultrasonics, to the pots, to the test machines, back to the inbox to get orders out and inquiries answered. I'm just yeah, running from one of the other all day and, and obviously trying to balance uh, training in there and, and and family and fun stuff. And so the, the social media side, yeah, I just, every time I look at my phone, there's just all these icons on it and it's just like, whoop. <laughs> so I just, yeah, I, I'm terrible at that. So I'll, I'll, I apologize in advance that um, I'll, even on my own YouTube channel, I'm terrible at answering um, questions on my own videos. So uh, it's not my strong suit. Um, so yeah, apologies in advance for that. But I can say that the at least the online resources um, are, are going to give you really good uh, and accurate information. You know, information that is from you know really the world's most robust uh, te- you know testing, um, and really the world's most sort of I guess you know testing that's been you know peer reviewed by uh, really the best and brightest in the industry. It's not like I did this in a you know, mind little bubble. Um, so really leaned on a lot of people who are a lot, lot smarter than myself to really get this, you know, sort of up and going. And I'm lucky to be able to network with a lot of the, the you know, I guess the top people in this space in the industry. So, you know, the information resources are something that you can actually depend on are going to steer you in the right direction. Um, unfortunately, there's just so much stuff out there. There's just, yeah, just channels that get so many views and 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 that's one of the things where i just get so many inquiries from people that have followed x advice from a particular place and it's just gone really really badly so yeah as much as possible trying to steer um people towards i guess an independent site where the information is based on you know i guess actual robust tested in you know in information and there's there's no you know sort of ulterior agenda behind the information apart from ensuring that we're getting people on the best product for their riding because that that's the model the you know i don't stock just one product or one particular type it's like we stock i stock the best products in each particular lubricant type because they're going to suit different riders for various reasons so 
um, right. the, the retail side supports the testing, uh, as does the private testing. Um, so, yeah, I'm not trying to sell my own stuff or anything like that. It's, it's, it's you know, a big part of why I started this was to improve that information because, yeah, I think um, like a lot of jobs, like there's more to life than selling stuff. You know, I think you go to work hard every day. You, you, to me, you've got to be doing something that you find personally you know, fulfilling and worthwhile. And and for me, that is, you know, I hate thinking about where around, you know, the millions of households of cyclists in the world, where are all the solvents and degreases going that people are using to maintain their drivetrains um, and how many people are just burning through their drivetrains um, because it's, and it's so hard this, you know, the, obviously the marketing, we've got 300 lubricants all saying they're amazing. Um, and right, a lot of them right. with really powerful marketing behind them and a lot of them with supposedly amazing data behind them. Um, and a lot of times that's just, it's just really not accurate at all. And sometimes it is, and it's impossible for the average cyclist to tell what they're, you know, looking at is that, you know, something that they can believe and, and that's a choice they should go down or not. Um, and if it's the wrong choice, it just eats through their, um, you know, lovely part. So, yeah, I, I'm pretty uh, just, you know, this is sort of what I sort of bounce out of bed each day is to really try to, um, you know, get that better information out, get more cyclists saving a lot of drivetrain wear, saving a lot of solvent use because the top products need so much less cleaning maintenance than, you know, your, your not great products and uh, obviously trying to encourage, you know, responsible disposal of any solvent cleaning that is done. It's not that difficult to just keep it somewhere safe and do an annual you know, run to whatever your council state's, you know, disposal um, uh, is as opposed to just pouring it out somewhere that could get into waterways or other places we just don't want this stuff going. Um, even Absolutely. Yeah, one, one last thing is that, you know, even if you are using an environmentally friendly cleaner, um, the, the trap there is that, you know, a lot of times what you're cleaning off isn't. So the cleaner itself might be environmentally friendly, but the factory grease or the lube you're cleaning off may well not be. So it's not necessarily great to pour that down the drain or somewhere where it can, you know, obviously get into the environment. And uh, and so, yeah, just trying to trying to really improve a lot of those areas that they're going to be the key information sort of uh, areas that I focus on and try to drive and try to counter the, you know, the not great information that's being pumped out by some places. And, yeah, and that, that's sort of, yeah, the... the the, the the big sort of fun focus i've got i've got a uh, i'm not going to run out of work on that front um <laughs> anytime soon so uh yeah and this is where you know it's great to get you know sort of the opportunity to you know where i get invited on to you know sort of places like yourself you know the more places i get a chance to sort of you know talk about this stuff and try to reach more people it, it's sort of then those people cycling being a social sport they talk to their friends about they heard you know x or y or z and then they refer their friends to it and yeah, it's amazing now how it's really gaining momentum. So um, there's been a lot of lubricant launches recently where people put the comments on the launch articles or on the Insta post where it's like, I'm not touching it until it's been tested by zero friction cycling. <laughs> and it's like, you you river. That's you know that that's it. That's obviously exactly sort of what we're wanting to see. That that is sort of really getting that penetration now and and having you know somewhere people know they can go to get proper information and not you know really wackadoodle information that's being right. pumped out by a lot of other places and sometimes places that know better, but they're doing it because they're sponsored by a particular brand or product to to do it. So you're not always going to be getting obviously that independent advice. So 
Yeah. So that's a bit of a rambling wrap up, but uh, (laughs) I appreciate all your time and I definitely a wealth of information and a great resource for anybody that wants to learn more. And um, I will send people your way. Lovely. Thanks. And I'll look forward to, uh, I'll I'll try to, I promise I will try to check the comments and uh, actually reply to something. So yeah, I'll do my best. Perfect. I appreciate it. You take care. And um, you too. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Dave.